Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. So I was telling Tim earlier that the goal for the year was a book a week. So 52. And uh, to show my naivete, for a long time, like maybe the last month, I've been aiming for another number, 56, thinking that there was 56 weeks in the year. Where in the world did you get that? I don't know, like 365 and then dyslexia of the mind somehow. (laughs) Go with six. But then today I'm like, wait, there's 52 weeks in the year. I thought there were 65. Shut your dirty mouth. (laughs) So So are you ahead? I'm at 51 books. What? With, uh, what? It's only week 47. Five or six weeks to go. It's week 47. Dude, awesome. So yeah, I'm going to hit the goal. Now, some of those books are like, I counted each of the Narnia books individually, which they're each books, so that's fine. Yeah, but, no, yeah you're good. And some of them are audiobooks, so it's not like I read 51, but I've still progressed through. And that's just the books I've finished. I have a whole other list of books that I've started mm. and have not finished. So if I accumulated those at like maybe like you added four of those to one, like four started books equals one completed book, then I would easily be in like the 60s or 70s. It's like computing FTE right there. I love it. Are you ready to go? You ready? ready. Yeah, let's do this. Yeah, I don't think it's going to get any better. I was trying to look up the age of my (laughs) author, but I can't seem to find it. He is 65. I think he's in around 40. Three, two, one, go. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode number 57. I thought we were already recording. We were. (laughs) But I'll leave it on there. It's just for funsies. Okay. Uh, So yeah, episode 57. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's other things I was going to talk to you. Well, maybe we just talk about it now. Do Is it. there any other introductory material we need to put in this episode? I don't think so. I was just going to make sure we're on 57. I think that's it, though. We are, because yeah. Peterson yeah. was 55, yeah, and then last good. week was 56. I don't think so. So in this episode, we're, I, Charlie, am going to talk about Luke 16 and the parable of the shrewd steward. That's it. Get out your Bibles. Yeah, it'll be good. I mean, if I remember correctly, this first one, is more like a context bridge than anything else. But uh, I do want to remind all of our listeners that next week, which is, is it next week? No, it's, it's, two, it's two weeks. weeks. Two week, we're recording it next week. Yeah. That's why. So yeah, we're going to record a Thanksgivings special for you. I just want to throw out there, when I start priming the pump now, that there's some incentive for you to listen to that episode. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But hey, you might want to listen to that. It might be spicy. You might be thankful for it. You might be thankful for it. I don't know. Mm. Um, I feel like there was another thing I was going to say of like, don't forget to mention this. If it comes to you. If it, okay, yeah. So with that, we have some Thinklings business to attend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. Now I have, I will start today and I have with me the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien and uh, a little bit of background on why I was sifting through this. It kind of it kind of connects to the discussion we had in episode fifty five with Andrew Peterson, where we talked about the role of community and friendship for Christian creative people, and which should be all of them. It maybe isn't all of them, but it should be all of them. All the Christians should be creative in some sense. But, and so that kind of got me thinking down a rabbit trail of you know how important were these friendships to the people that we are named after, to the Inklings. And I was like, I wonder if I can find anything in their own letters that kind of depict or refer to how valuable they saw these relationships. And um, with Tolkien, it's very easy. You can go and there's, there's actually a letter that he wrote to Clyde Kilby of Wheaton. And it's kind of the famous quote, like, had it not been for Lewis... I probably would not have published the Lord of the Rings. He just blatantly says it. And I think that's a letter in like 1965. I have it in front of me, but I'm in another year. Um, And it's interesting. I actually looked at the letters of Lewis as he wrote to Tolkien. And what I noted of, it was, it was a letter from, I think 1949. And most of uh, his letters end a very similar way. A lot like uh, Paul, you know, kind of had the, the patent intros and 
outros, you know. But what I noted of Lewis writing to Tolkien was he said, I, I miss you very much, which was he normally signed like cordially C.S. Lewis or something like that. Oh. But at the end of that letter in 49, it was, I miss you very much, huh. C.S. Lewis, which I was like, that is, you know, yeah. that's a little nugget maybe, but it's not as good as what I found in this letter uh, that Tolkien wrote to his, I'm assuming daughter, it is his daughter, yep, because he refers to himself as daddy at the end of the uh, letter, to Priscilla Tolkien. And uh, when this was written was November 26th, 1963. So almost, you know, do the math on that, uh, just about 50-ish something mm-hmm. years, almost yeah. to the week of what we're right now. But what, what had happened around that time? 1963. Has Kennedy been assassinated at that point? Because uh, Lewis died. I'm trying to think of what year that was. Ah, there it is. Because Lewis and Kennedy died on the same day. This letter was written to his daughter four days after Lewis had died. What? Okay. Yeah. And so uh, I was like, ah, now let's see if he mentions anything. Now, if you remember from the Peterson episode, we talked a lot about trees. Mm-hmm. And so just the association of how these things all balled together is kind of neat, you know, because we we had this episode where we talked with Peterson about the Inklings and about these friendships and about these trees. You know, he, he just published that book, The God of the Garden, talk about great trees, you know. Listen to this. So, <clears throat> November 26, 1963. Dearest, thank you so much for your letter. So far, I have felt the normal feelings of a man of my age. And so you're like, okay, he's talking, I think he's referring directly to Losing a friend at his age. But then, like an old tree that is losing all its leaves one by one, this feels like an axe blow near the roots. Whoa. Very sad that we should have been so separated in the last years, but our time of close communion endured in memory for both of us. And so I just wow. so think about the picture that Tolkien sets forth of himself and Lewis. Interestingly enough, you know, there's this character in the Lord of the Rings that, you know, has kind of famously been associated with C.S. Lewis, which is Treebeard. And so I think, you know, picture Lewis and Tolkien as these huge ents. And here is Tolkien who has lost his friend. And what does he say? He's like, I'm losing all my leaves. It's like someone took an axe to, to the roots of the great tree. Hmm. And uh, I just thought that was a really interesting way for him to describe their friendship and th- yeah. their relationship and their companionship. And if you haven't read about kind of how the they had a little bit of a falling out towards the end of uh, their lives there, and you know, it's kind of sad, but they, I think they did remain friends, but not as as close as they had been. But I just thought that was really neat to think that yeah. through, and you know, thinking through the creative lives that they shared, and you know, for Tolkien, it's like here's this guy that helped me do some of my greatest work. And it's like, uh, I, I'm, I'm bare now. I have no leaves and, you know, I'm being chopped down. Like, that's how he felt. Like, he felt like wow. his friend had been chopped down and then he's got an ax going to his roots too because of that. So really huh. interesting thought there, kind of tying into all those ideas. From a creative standpoint, that's interesting. So if like, you know, as you get older, you're dying and so your leaves are slowly dropping. Maybe it's like on Lewis's tree bunch of leaves are left but then out of time he got chopped down but i don't know which way it's going but it's just it's interesting you get two creative writers and like when they talk about themselves they're still being creative that's really cool well i think i think he's referring to himself, himself. as okay. the as the tree like the axis come to my roots like that's oh. it's like impacting him like to his core i think is the metaphor okay okay um and then the result of that like the the you know pun the, the fruit of that is that the leaves are off the tree. Like, mm. that's how I feel. Like, there's nothing here anymore. Um, and so it's it's a sad letter. It's a very sad letter. Mm. And he, he goes on in that letter, if you want to Google it, I'm sure you can find it, to talk about attending the funeral services of Lewis. And it, there's multiple services at multiple places, and they were different. Um, and he talks about how they each were. And, you know, he's, he's writing this to his daughter. I think it's a, a means of grieving. And, uh, but yeah, again, just again, it, illustrates in a very poetic way the value of those those friendships and especially that the metaphor of the roots and these big trees and uh you know hmm. 
if you want to be like that, what do you probably need? Is <laughs> maybe you need some other trees around you. <laughs> yeah. Um, Did you finish the book? Oh, the yeah. Uh, no, 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 no. I have okay. not. I didn't know if you were interpreting. I mean, it, it's kind of an interesting thing. Like you have these books of other people's letters, mm -hmm. and so like, do you just sit down and read that? Or I think it would be interesting if you like read through, for example, like if you had a good Tolkien or Lewis biography, and then as you progress through the biography to read through the letters along with it, that might be an interesting project yeah. to kind of see. Here's what the author's saying, and here's what the guy is saying at that time of his life. But no, I have not. Okay. <laughs> I've only read like four or five of the letters out of there. Okay. That's cool. I mean, it's almost like when you're reading like in Chronicles and Kings, you can do the same thing with the prophets. But if you just read the prophets, yeah. you always have to like go and figure out what's going on. So the context there. Oh, that's fascinating. Anyway, that's what I've got. And I'll say it is a goodness level 10 because it's just mm. Tolkien and Lewis probably just deservedly always get that mark. But. And I think that's probably okay. All right, so my book this week is a book called The Knowable Word by a man by the name of Peter Kroll. All right, so The Knowable Word by Peter Kroll. Subtitle is Helping Ordinary People Learn to Study the Bible. So I haven't talked about this book yet, but this weekend I finished up a four-week series at a church in southern Iowa uh, where I had been asked to come and talk about Bible study. So it was really cool the way this church did this. They, uh, they had four weeks where they wanted to devote themselves to learning how to study the Bible better. So during their normal service, uh, they did everything they normally would, but then during the sermon time, they had me come and do like a class on how to study the Bible, which I thought was cool because if you think about worship, you're, you're, you're devoting yourself to God's word and God's teaching in like an accent, an accent or two sort of a sense. And so that's what we did. It was really great. Uh, they're great people. But one of the things I always recommend when I go and do these Bible study series at churches is this is a really basic book to get you into Bible study. So Noble Word, it's like 100 pages. It's really small. But what he does is he walks you through the, a very good method of Bible study that's going to tie you to the text itself. There's only six chapters. Yeah, so I'm looking at it. It's got like 114 pages. I really like it. So I would say um, if you are, a, are someone who would like to improve your Bible study, but you've never read anything like that, I would recommend this book, The Noble Word. In fact, I would say it's a six on the goodness scale. So this means that I've read it, and I'm glad I read it, and I think you should read it. But I will say this, it's a six, but it's not that complicated. It's not a hard book to study. So if you want some help in like, you know, just studying for your own devotional time, this is a really good book. I would highly recommend it. For our children's program, I've noticed a disconnect recently. Uh, the kids, they just, they're memorizing this truth, they're learning this truth. And it's when we were singing a song, Ancient Words, where it talks about the, how the Bible uh, gives us guidance on how to walk through this world. And it's like they just don't get, oh, I'm supposed to read the Bible. Well, why? So that I can say that I did it? No, it's so that you know how to live your life. And it just kind of brought to light, you know, most people, they read the Bible and they don't know how to connect it to how to live their life, like just even their regular devotions and stuff. And so I think that's like awesome. And that book is really accessible. We've sold tons of them. I think you have it even as a textbook, don't you? No, I don't. It's because it's, so I would say Too easy. it is a little bit, and it's brief. And the other thing is I assign other books that go through this method more deeply. But that's why this is uh, the cookies on the low shelf. Um, but I would say this is this is completely accessible for a high schooler. So if you had a, a group of high schoolers and you want to walk them through, this would be a great book to start on. Oh yeah, they can do it like in a like in a Sunday school yeah, or like uh, a youth leader, youth yeah, leader. Sunday school teacher. Cool. So and so you would say that like because you use grasping God's word. So right? so I've I have relied on much of grasping God's words material for my own lecture content. So I use like but you his, don't have that as a textbook. I no, don't have that as a textbook. I use uh, Howard Hendricks Living by the Book. Oh, I that's use, right. Yeah, and I have a couple other textbooks that are a little more technical. But you still use basic Bible interpretation, right? Yep, I use basic Bible interpretation. That's Roy the, B. Zuck. Yep. I and really that like one, that book. Personally. It is. It's. It is. It is technical and dense, but it's one of those you want to have on your shelf for the one day event. So Anecdote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Caveat. <laughs> Which I gotta give credit where credits due. Uh, Robert Delney, who used to teach here at Faith, <gasps> Doctor Delney, and he recently passed away. 
uh, within the last few years here. And he taught history of fundamentalism. And uh, at the time when I was taking history of fundamentalism from him, he was in his upper 80s, I believe, mid 80s. And so if you do the math, you know, I was taking that class in like 2013 and he's in his 80s and he's telling us all these stories from the 50s and 60s. He like, he's not a historian because he's like read those books. Like he lived through, like he was literally at some of these meetings that he's telling us stories about, which is phenomenal. So awesome. But when he would, when he would go to tell us a story, that's how he would say it. He'd be like, anecdote. <laughs> and, and to give you a picture of the guy, imagine a Baptist Monopoly man. Yeah, for real. That's, That's not who he wrong. is. <laughs> or like or like if you merge the Monopoly man and his attire with the stature of Bilbo Baggins. Oh, it's good. So a modern Baptist Bilbo Baggins. That was Robert. A little Cowan. more sedate than Bilbo, but yes. So anyway, back to the anecdote. Uh, when I was in college. <laughs> that was just to introduce the anecdote. Yeah. That was the that was beautiful. introductory anecdote. I love yeah. this. Storytelling's fun. Anyway, um, <laughs> <clears throat> anecdoting is fun. Maybe I should say it. So when I was a freshman in college, there was a different professor who taught intro to Bible, Dr. Cole. And, mm -hmm. but we still, we used that textbook. We mm -hmm. used Roy B. Zuck. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, as the silly freshman I was, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to find this guy. And of course the main medium of the time was Facebook. And wouldn't you know that Roy B. Zuck, who was pretty, you know, ancient himself at the time, Oh yeah, was on Facebook, and so I got on Facebook and I sent him a sent him a message like, "Hey, I just read your book, you know, da 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 da." And he messaged me back, and you know, excuse the poor impersonation of Roy Bizak, who I never met nor heard audibly, but he wrote back like, "Oh, I'm so glad you enjoyed my book. If you'd like to contact me further, you should send an email to here because I don't use the Facebook that often," and you know, like. The, like, the Facebook. So you know, like, good. the people that say, like, that's the COVID, yep. Yep. you know? Um, <laughs> the face, that's my favorite. I love that. <laughs> but, yeah, anyway, so he, he such a nice man, and, like, I've never forgot that. Like, people, like, this is what people don't understand when they read a book. Like, you, you can't just, like, rip the book apart like it's the person. It's yeah. like, he is, like, such a nice guy, and yeah. you're like, oh, that book's so boring. It's like, he's not trying to be entertaining. He's trying to give you the information you need to survive. Yeah, for real. And he does it so well. And yep. it's like, who cares if the book is boring? Like, what, what is in there is like gold. It is. It's such a good book. It is. And he, yeah. And it's, I think, put many a freshman to sleep. Yes. Unfortunately. And then they get to seminary and I tell them, hey, you need some kind of a book that deals with figures of speech. And I tell them to get out Basic Bible Interpretation by Roy Suck because he has yep. a nice 30 to 40 page summary of the most common figures of speech and then they use it hopefully for a long time and i can has, remember i can remember going back to zuck because i think we were reading like cracking old testament codes or something like that for hebrew yeah and you had recommended you know go back and read zuck on some of these things and uh i remember like reading this other book that's maybe a little higher level like into the hebrew language and you're like i'm not really sure what this guy's talking about and it's like well, what does zuck say and you go back and you start reading zuck and you're like Oh my goodness, he is like so clearly communicating the points yeah. that I need to know. And it's like almost like the, I don't want to say the freshman mind isn't ready to, yeah. to chew on that yet, but maybe they're just, maybe they're just not ready to chew on that yet. <laughs> Zuck, Zuck isn't boring because he's not a good writer. He's boring because he's so smart and you just don't know the context. Because I got back from my THM at Central and then I started teaching this class. And I remember opening the book thinking, do I keep this? And I start reading, I'm like, this is amazing. So it's, it's to have it on your shelf. It's really good. On what, so. what we've thrown the quote out before too, boredom is the sickness yep. of a weak mind. mind. No idea where that's from. Yeah. But One more thing about, so this, this church was really great. So I was there for four weeks. They had to put up with me. Uh, my friends uh, hosted us in the afternoons. But while I was there, I always make jabs about Folgers and they liked Folgers of that church. And so on the final day Sunday I, I walk up and they're like there's a, a, a bag for you there under the pulpit and I'm like oh no so I, guess what I pull out I pull out a, a gift bag that had instant Folgers packets taped like 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 I don't know all the way around it in circles I'm like oh Deb anyways but it was good but there was actually real coffee in there too but I thought that was pretty funny so 
back in, make sure I'm, yeah, I'm not muted. Back in Williamsburg when I was pastoring there, I would use Dr. Myron's illustration of like the sin nature where he uses like the desserts or whatever. Like you naturally like this one, you don't like this one. What are you going to choose every time is the one that you love. And I would always use chocolate cake and anything with coconut. (laughs) And I remember the first time I used that illustration in a Sunday morning service to talk about the sin nature. And I came back to preach that evening and sitting on the pulpit was a box of Casey's donuts of multiple flavors, but they all had coconut. Oh, oh. And oh. and I'm gonna like you crack up on that, but you're like, I'm not gonna eat these. You just wasted like five. You bucks. did. I know. But too much folders I have in my office that I'm never gonna use. I'm lot. just amassing it. And like this is what poor people have paid money for. We all let Tim go. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> so what's your book, Tim? So I'm working on writing a book, uh, Song of Songs for Singles, and so most of my books are dating books or marriage books. The one I have today is a new book, How Should a Christian Date by Eric Demeter. I'm not sure, sure if that's how you say his last name. It's D-E-M-E-T-E-R. As long as you're not using carbon dating, I think you're okay. Hey, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Carbon freezing maybe might be, a, but never mind. Anyway, so um, in the probably one of the things that really struck me about this book was on the cover, they have... Just as I remembered what I was going to say earlier. <laughs> Go for it. You, you can finish and then we'll, if no, you're listening no, to this. get it. You've already interrupted. <laughs> no, we'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. Keep talking about your book. But I just wanted, I wanted it to be known. I had remembered. God has blessed the mind by remembering what I wanted to bring up. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Don't let, don't lose it again. So he's got a whole list of, uh, how should a Christian date? And on the front cover, he's got this whole list of uh, things that, appear to be non-essentials for him. And um, the subtitle is, it's not as complicated as you think. So dating's not as complicated as you think. So though, uh, so he has uh, in here, maybe start something more spiritual, like mere Christianity or the case for Christ. And he's making these references to Christian titles. Are people even reading that these days? Pensees, maybe. Ooh, Pensee. Pensee, that's mm. it. I couldn't remember By how to Blaise say it. Pascal. Pensee, maybe. I don't know. Am I overthinking this whole thing? Probably not, right? I mean, we're talking about marriage here. Uh, then he talks about, ah, Revelation. She could be an amillennialist. <laughs> Was that the one on my deal breaker list? I hope she's not wanting a beach honeymoon. She better not like how they're arranging the Chronicles of Narnia books now. Oh, oh, oh no, no, no. Oh, he wins. That he is, wins. That is the best advice. Yeah. Wardrobe's gotta be first. This is on the front cover. I'm just that's fantastic. I might buy that book just for that. Me We're too. talking about world building here, not <gasps> simply. And then it's like cut off at the bottom of the page. Let's, let's get him on the podcast to talk. Oh, about for that. real? That's fantastic. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, there's a story behind that. You know, there's a story. Well, he's dated enough. That's... He probably has a story about it because he's got lots of stories. The guy's like almost forty or forty. I don't know. I was trying to look up how old he was. He, but... he knows someone who broke up with someone because they didn't like the order of the, the Narnia books. That's know. why that's on the cover. He's Hands got a down. whole list of things that are presumably non-essentials. Anyway, he still believes in dating and he's writing on dating and trying to help Christians date. So uh, I'm not going to get into a lot of things here. I think it was kind of interesting at the very beginning. Um, the, you know, I hesitated to write a Christian dating book as a single guy. And, well, and <clears throat> I'll let that one just die there. Uh, but he talks about how cultures used to do it. It would be weird to rely on any one of these stories as a rubric for romance today. And he goes through like Genesis 2 about Adam falling asleep and he woke up and boom, there was his wife and God made her. It's like, that's probably not a good finding your wife kind of a story about going to sleep and allowing God to make a rib, take your rib and make her. So anyway, he's being There's a other people bit... in the Bible who fell asleep and woke up and their wife was there. There she was, boom. I mean, worked for <laughs> Boaz, right? Ruth provocatively slept at Boaz's feet so that he would Amen. marry her. That, that's in the book. But I, just read, I know, the book. I'm watching. But I think maybe Jacob would have a different take on that one. <laughs> well, he brings that one up too. <laughs> a consolation. Jacob was conned into working for the love of his you life. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? 14 years by your father. <laughs> There's some pretty weird ones there in the Bible. <laughs> anyway. Can I, just say, can I just say, I think the best joke I've ever used in a sermon was here at Faith, and the title of that, you can go listen to it, archive.faith.edu. 
where the title was how to find the perfect woman. And I was talking about lady wisdom, Mm. but uh, I think I slipped some comment in there about, you know, it's a classic Leah and Rachel situation. You think you get one thing and you find out you got the other (laughs) and uh, just kind of moved on from it. But you could see the faces in the crowd. As you said that, like catch up to you. (laughs) It's like a seven second delay. Um, so he comments here, marriage was arranged in most ancient Near Eastern and Jewish cultures and consisted of a conversation between the groom's parents and the bride's parents. India, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Japan still practice the ancient tradition today. Can you imagine your mom and dad returning from your neighbor's house and announcing they found your spouse? So kind of funny. And then that's basically it with the whole arranged marriage conversation. And then he just is discussing about discussing dating the whole time. Anyway, I was not too impressed with this book. Um, he does take a good stand on purity. So for that, I'm grateful. I must admit for a guy that's trying to recommend people on how to marry, uh, which he does see that as the goal of dating is you're looking for uh, a a spouse. Um, he hasn't found one, even though he wants to marry and yet he's almost 40. Uh, so I personally did think that would be maybe a, uh, a reason to give pause on to how, how, how good his advice might be. But I mean, you're reading his book. Maybe I should write a book on dating, huh? I think yours would be better. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, so in the one section, he's like, Christians who take it to the next level, you know, some people go up and say, God told me. No, not like a physical thing. Just like a, God told me we were going to get married. You know, people actually use those kinds of lines. And some people are charismatic and they really believe that God has told them. Uh, unfortunately, God hasn't told them because God doesn't reveal himself in that way. It's a complete false view of how to look at finding a spouse. God expects you to use wisdom in the selection of a spouse. He doesn't divinely reveal who you will marry. Uh, That's why you have all of this spouse selection stuff found in the wisdom books of the Bible. And so Eric, uh, I would think, as a single guy, could guide and direct Christians on how to find a spouse through the use of God's Word. Unfortunately, he uses anecdotes in his personal experiences, which have failed. And so I have been pretty unimpressed with the title. Uh, Specifically, he doesn't have a problem with some people thinking God specifically has revealed, hey, you're supposed to marry this person. And he uses some anecdotal evidence to support that conclusion, Mm -hmm. which I would contend goes contrary to God's word. So there's some other things I don't like about the book, but um, How Should a Christian Date by Eric Demeter, I would would not recommend it. I recommended Dateable a little while ago, that one by Pakluda. I think he actually gave a lot better advice for people that are interested in dating. I still personally think dating's dumb, but um, I'll save that. So you, you wouldn't even put this on the scale then if you're not recommending? I'm not even going to put it on the scale. Right. I don't think it's really helpful. Okay. I'm, yeah, that's helpful to know. So just on that topic, we sh- we should have a discussion about because you 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 don't like the term dating. You don't like the ideas in our culture surrounding that term, like what it does or could mean. Mm-hmm. We should maybe just have a, a podcast where we talk through that. I will say I have started writing a book about dating, and here's how far I've gotten. Uh, let me count. Six words in, <laughs> I've got the title. Here it is: single but not ready to mingle. Oh, and I think oh. it. And the 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 purpose of the book would be using wisdom to discern: Are you in a position to even consider pursuing that? You know, like think try and and then and then also applying that same paradigm to the partner you're pursuing. Yeah. Are they someone that is ready? Like or should be considered a, an option for you, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and but implicit in that discussion is well, what do we think dating is in the first place? And anyway, but okay, so here's what I remembered I wanted to say at the beginning of the podcast and did not say last week on the podcast. I mentioned for books and business that predominantly what I'd been working on was memorizing my lines for a Christmas Carol, yeah. which both of you. Attended so over the weekend. Oh, it was so good. So I just wanted to, what did you think? I really, what did you think of my, that's the first dramatic acting performance I've ever done. So tell me, what did you think yeah, of the, he's drama. <laughs> Tim's, maybe not, a, maybe it's his first dramatic act, acting, acting <laughs> experience, but you've spoken a ton. Yes. And so you were like, 
it was like a Charlie we'd never seen. It was, it was fun. You did a great job, and your booming preacher voice was Helpful. heard round the auditorium. It was a little bit hard to hear some of the other characters sometimes, but I was still able to follow, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I thought you guys did a great job. It was very entertaining. What I, I think is, I, and I don't know if Dickens, Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens, I don't know if he ever thought that this would happen, but I, I'm wondering if you could get into the mind of Charles Dickens and think through, like, what was his real point in writing that book? And we, we've talked about this before, where... It's not really a gospel message, but it is a religious message where there's these spirits and there's virtues discussed about giving and all that type of stuff. But would he ever have realized that his story being read or acted would be the source of the Christmas joy that he's advocating Scrooge to have? Which, and that, I would say that would be my takeaway from the first, like, the first play I've ever been in is there's just something about, and I would maybe take it back to the way God has made us, like the creative order or something, like people, there's something about being in that setting and, and seeing it take place, being a part of it, and there's just a joy about like that group of people being able to have that fun and fellowship together, and it's not like the actors are having their fun and the crowd's having their own fun. It's like it's one big ball. Yeah. And... Mm-hmm. uh I don't know. That would be my takeaway. It was just, it's, it's such a source of joy for the people that got to partake, and so it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I thought I thought you did a good job. I thought everyone did. I was impressed with Chambers. Like he really had a lot of. Oh, I love that guy. Seriously, the, for for a youper, it was pretty impressive. I've called him Scrooge for almost two and a half months straight. Oh, youper. He's from the UP. Oh, and my wife's a troll from the lower part of Michigan. So the youpers. And the Are trolls, you allowed to call your wife a troll? I do, and she proudly takes the title because there's the Mackinac Bridge that connects the two. And so mm-hmm. if you live under the bridge, you're a troll. But what I was going to say, <laughs> no, that, okay. So I'm, 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 you're good. two years ago, an intro to Bible study, Youper's in class or Chambers is in class. And I say, you're a Youper? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, my wife's a troll. And I gave no context. So I'm talking to a Michigander, whole class loses it. Cause I just called him. I'm like, no, 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 no. You got to understand context. They didn't care. They hadn't had my class on intro to Bible study though. All right. So here's what I want to say. I had this thought, Charlie, because I the only other time I've seen A Christmas Carol is the Disney one, the animated one. Yeah. And so this one... Um, wait, I, wait, wait, wait. You've never seen a Muppet Christmas Carol? No. And I Andy, know... Andy. I know, that's the one you say is... Party foul. Uh, whoa, whoa. It's so much fun. It's so much fun. So... <laughs> Your kids will love it. I Well, I was a big... Anyways. So, well, here's the thing. So this one really heightened the sense of uh, his own, it like developed his life more. And I think the last time I saw the cartoon when I was young, so here I'm thinking of his life focus and his regret over how he treats people and the whole like, not I don't know if you call it repentance, but he's like recognizing how wrong he's been. And something, I had a question, and I'm curious about this. And it goes back to Tim reading Robinson Crusoe. Yeah. And finding out there's another edition that has way more Christianity into it. So I'm now curious, I'm like, is there more of like a Christian worldview in this thing? I wonder if there's like an, I don't know. I'm just curious. Like I, I doubt it. I mean, I thought about trying to go and like kind of doing some biographical study on Dickens and Mm kind of see, I I do think it's just meant to be kind of your like run of the mill moralistic Christmas. Yeah. But here's how I can, here's how I can like theologically justify, you know, what's going on. If you just assume that, that, Ebenezer Scrooge is a carnal Christian and he needs to repent. Mm-hmm. And so he just, you know, he gets he gets in and he's like, I need to walk in the spirit. And then boom, he's he's being transformed. Great. That's not what's intended at all. <laughs> like, I'm dying over here. <laughs> That's horrendous. <laughs> but yeah. I was actually gonna say, everyone lives in God's reality. So even if you deny God's reality, you still have that moral conscience built into you. And so eventually. You're going to have to keep shoving it out. Or, I don't know. The whole thing was fascinating. I, I want to go and read the book now and just see what yeah. the book has. I liked how you brought it back to the order of creation. And so living in wisdom, what does that look like? Hoarding all of your wealth and not enjoying life. He's the epitome of the well, and, fool in Ecclesiastes. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's another, like, 
he he's trying to find joy in this one thing mm -hmm. and then he realizes that he, well he doesn't have joy at all and then he finds it in you know giving you know i think it's just a good way of saying it, but like loving other people um yeah a lot of fun yeah it was good it was really and i think you're you're the the ghost of Christmas present outfit was perhaps my favorite with the beard. And I don't know mm. what it was like a green robe. It was like a sort. green, like what was satiny. the thing you had on your head? The gold. It was like thing. a wreath. It's like it a Christmas wreath. Beautiful. I just, I can't wait to make that picture into a meme. <sighs> Can you send me those pictures by the way? Anyway, sure. So now we will jump into the episode. And if you're still listening, like, man, you are so awesome. <laughs> 35 minutes of whatever this just was. But, um, yeah, we're going to talk about Luke 16, and we're going to try and get some context on what maybe Luke was going for. And then it's actually a two-part series. We're, we'll come back to it probably in a month or so and have part two of it. But this will hopefully just get the, get the ball rolling. Hopefully you uh, enjoy studying through Luke 16. So we will see you next week on the Thinklings Podcast. Let's have a conversation about... The shrewd steward, and that's not the shrewd steward, Andy. That would be a beet farming steward. Dwight. Yep, that's right. From uh -huh. the office. This Sounds is from good Luke to me. 16, the okay. shrewd steward. Speaking of uh, shrewd, I have a little shrewd for you. It's actually kind of a big one. A little shrewd? You know, students, they like have stuff sent to the bookstore, and they're not students anymore, and then they just never come and retrieve it. And so after a while, somebody just decides to open it up and throw it away. Or What? And I got somebody got two. A Dwight bobblehead. A Dwight. Well, it's <gasps> not a bobblehead, but it's a Dwight. I don't know. Is it a Funko Pop? One of those little Funkos? <laughs> there was a Dude. Michael one too, and it was a keychain. <laughs> Dibs. Anyway. Dibs. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what that is. We're going to have a white owl thing. Funko Pops it. are like these little. It's great. Yeah, I know what those are. Okay. Okay, so anyway. <laughs> Let's get to the content. So this Caveat. is in, in <laughs> content. This is in Luke 16. Okay? Yeah, Tim, where was the... Come on, get us back on track with the... <laughs> okay. Sorry, Charlie. Calm down. Right. Calm down. It's this coffee. <clears throat> yeah, we have some good coffee this morning. Okay, so here's how I want to introduce this. Have you ever heard of the deferred gratification marshmallow test? Yes. Yes. Yes, I have. That's a Tim, classic. have you ever heard of this? Other than the other day when we were talking about it? <laughs> no, I have Before not that. heard of this. So this was a study done, a psychological study done by Walter Mischel. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. He's a Stanford professor in 1972. Here's the essence of the studies. They took young children. I think they were like four or five years old. And they asked them, you can have this marshmallow right now. Or if you wait, and I don't know how long the time was, if you wait... We'll give you two marshmallows. And so they, you know, they keep track of who, who took it right away and which ones waited. And then they followed those kids down through the years to when they went to college and kind of quantified their success. And turns out that there was a, I don't, there's some flaws with the original study. There's a lot written on this study. It's very famous. You can Google it. Uh, but turns out there is a connection between the, virtue of we'll call it patience or deferred gratification understanding that a decision for a later time is better than a, an immediate decision there's actually a connection between that patience virtue and success later on like so it's, it's a a good thing and that's this is a you know an earthly uh worldly psychological study but they're understanding the effect of of someone who understands making a decision with future gain rather than immediate gain. And so, well, why are we talking about that? Well, Luke 16, this is a parable that is unique to Luke. It's not in any of the other synoptics or John. And it's about someone who makes a decision to help him out in the future. The problem with the parable, this is why it's kind of unique and interesting and hard to understand is that the one who does the decision, makes the decision to help himself out in the future, actually does it in a very dishonest way. And it almost seems like the parable exalts ungodly 
worldly practice and specifically in the area of money. Okay. Um, so we're not going to, we're, we're not going to jump into the actual text right away. What, what I want to model with this episode, and then there's going to be an episode in a few weeks where we look, it's, it's a two part series here on Luke 16. We're not going to answer all the questions, but what I want to do is take a very difficult passage and the three of us, as we walk down through it, model, you know, what would be a, a, a good approach to trying to understand a difficult passage. And so that's what we're going to do. So we're going to start off our intro to Bible professor, Andy. What is the first thing we do when we approach a passage? What should we try to do? You don't know my notes, but I'm going to see if you answer it correctly. So, if, <laughs> and, and I think if I were going to approach a passage, <clears throat> I would want to do a couple of things. First, I'd want to read it way more times than I think I need to, because when you're unfamiliar with the text, with the words, with the... I mean, I'm not even talking context and background. I'm just saying, for me, I think one of the most helpful things for me is to read it over and over and pay attention to the wording. So I would, I would read it and make as many observations as I can. Yep. Okay. So you actually, you actually, uh, you started exactly where I started. So Woo. good job, just Andy. Pull, yeah. pull the curtain back a little bit. The reason I'm focusing on this, and I'll, I'll broaden the story out. So earlier this year, myself and another student, another student, a student, he is a college student, Sawyer. Uh, we went on a road trip. Well, we Tom went out Sawyer. to Idaho, hmm. and I we went and visited some friends of mine that used to live in Iowa. He's now a teacher at the Ambrose School in Boise. Hmm. It's a great classical hmm. Christian school in uh, in actually Meridian, Idaho. It's a suburb of Boise. And uh, when we were at, uh, the couple's name is Nate and Ashley. When we're at their house, Nate is like, hey, what's going on in Luke 16? That's my paraphrase. I don't know. I don't know exactly how he worded it, but that's my paraphrase. <laughs> Nate's like, Charlie, what what do you think about this passage? And I open it up, and I thought he was going to talk about the story that comes later that might, may or may not be a parable where Lazarus oh, and yeah. the, the rich man. And I'm like, oh, okay. But no, he was talking about this parable. And so I started reading through it, and I'm like, wow, that is a, that's a difficult passage. And I'm like, okay, hey, Nate, I'm going to study this out. I'll preach a sermon on it in chapel, which may or may not have happened at this point in the semester. And uh, I'll, I'll throw it on a podcast episode and you can hear it later. So Nate, this is for you. So that's what got me onto this. I also have an assignment for the D-men uh, where we have to pick a portion of a gospel and we have to go through and do a research packet, like a, put a bunch of research together, exegesis on a certain passage and then tie that theme through other gospels. And so because of that conversation with Nate and while, uh, and, and then having this assignment, I settled on Luke 16. And the first thing I'm supposed to do for my research assignment is to read the passage 10 times in at least three different translations, which I've done, yeah. ESV, NASB, and New King James. And of course, because you know Greek, you translated it too. Well, that is, I think it's step four or five of oh, the okay. project that I'm still working on currently, which is to diagram the passage okay. and then... I was just jabbing. Of phrases and words. There's a seminary professor who says when he has seminary students, he gives them three rule, like three steps to studying a passage. Read it, read it again, and read it again. It's the most beautiful advice ever. Which one is that? That'd be Wayne Grudem. Ah, okay. I thought you were talking about one of our professors. No, no, I was trying to. Did, did we get Wayne as a, as an adjunct? Is he adjunct at faith? Right no. <laughs> He's not? Okay. So He, he would be mind. maybe open to working at faith, but cautious about it. Yeah. Okay. So. Oh, <laughs> that was open, but cautious and septic. Come on. That was a good. Okay. Sorry. Go to your. Sorry, I Charlie, I apologize. Keep going. <laughs> no, this is good. This is, I wanted this to be a lot, a lot of conversation. Well, on that. <laughs> so, okay. So we've read the passage. You said two other things, Andy. You said establish context mm -hmm. and background. Yep. So you read it, There's then there's context and there's background. That's what I want to do. This episode, we just want to think about the context of this passage. So some lower shelf questions. So like so someone who's a Bible college student, which is the aim of this podcast, and there's a lot of people listening, but the aim, the, the you know, we, we flavor this towards our yep. faith students. So who is the author of the gospel of Luke. Old Testament guy, do you know that answer? Yeah, uh, I don't know. It's kind of... I'm going to go with Luke for yes. $200. Okay. Luke is the author. And who is Luke? Someone fill in some gaps for me here. Give me some snippets on who Luke is. Wasn't he the physician that traveled with... Um, 
He was a physician. He was like, if you look at his gospel, he's much more detailed than others. So like Mark is very quick and very brief. Uh, Matthew is very much like focusing on like Jewish um, theology. Whereas like Luke, when he writes this and then acts, he's a lot more details of like the, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Like the, 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 the thing in life where you're in. So you threw, like, you threw a little nugget in there. So Luke is the author of not only the Gospel of Luke, mm-hmm. but it's a companion piece with the uh, Acts of the Apostles. And it's written to uh, actually a specific, well, there's, there's debate whether this is an actual person or not, but Theophilus, so Greek professor, what does Theophilus mean? It's a compound word that would mean lover of God. Yeah. Or friend of God. And so Luke, the physician, and from portions of the book of Acts, we know that he was a traveling companion of Paul on some of his missionary journeys. And there's the passages that it's written with a we. So the author is included. He's there with him. And there's times when he's not there. And so you can go and track that out on your own. You learn When you took Acts as a freshman or sophomore at Faith or, hey, you can take that online from anywhere, says yeah. the assistant online coordinator. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> anyway, so... You learn all about Acts, and Luke is there sometimes, not there all the time. He's writing it to Theophilus, and uh, there's there's a so that's important to know the context. So the flow of the book. Let's get into some literary context here, trying to kind of zero in, and we're, we're skipping you know a lot of things you could read about. Uh, I think there's a transition that happens in the book of Acts. Do you, either of you, know what it is? In the book of Acts? Or, sorry, book of Luke. So, not so book I got this, like, in the in book of Acts? Oh, in book Acts. Book of Luke. In the book, book of, of Luke. Luke. I, yeah. I, I misspoke. Yep, so I, I, there's a vague memory that there's one that I should know. I, I don't yeah. got it. No. So in Luke 9, verse 51, it says, when the day was nearing that he would be, I, I don't know if it's the word is offered up or lifted up, uh, Luke 9, 51, when the days were nearing that he would be offered up or raised up, he turned his face and set his face towards Jerusalem. Mm. And so the, it, the, the book is kind of sectioned in, mm-hmm. in a couple of parts where here he is beginning his ministry. He's interacting with his disciples, with the Pharisees, etc., mm-hmm. doing his miracles, teaching. And then the days are nearing for him to be crucified. So he turns mm-hmm. his face and he's on the way to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. uh, chapter nine through nineteen twenty, And then, you know, 19 and 20, I think it's Luke 19, well, maybe it's 21, somewhere in there where he rides in the triumphal entry and then he's crucified. And then you have some accounts of the resurrection in Luke that are unique as well mm-hmm. with, um, is it Cleopas on the road, the disciples on the road to Emmaus? Um, those are unique accounts. But anyway, so Luke 9 to 19, it's him on his way to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And as he goes, he, he has a lot of run-ins with this group of people called the Pharisees. And I I think that that's probably what's really important to understanding this passage because there's just all of these interactions where the Pharisees are confused, upset about what Jesus is teaching. And there's this dual role of Jesus's teaching where he is teaching his disciples. This is what a disciple should be like. But then along with that, the Pharisees are listening and there's a kind of a secondary message where it's like in Pharisees, by the way, you're not like this. So let's zero in really close to our passage. Uh, What's right before Luke 16? This is not a high level question. It'd be Luke Luke 15. 15. I thought you wanted like with the pericope or what's going on. I'm like, so Luke 15 right before is a very famous group of parables. It's the lost sheep, the lost coin, Mm -hmm. and the prodigal son, the lost son. son, And at the very end of the parable or the story of the prodigal son, you find out that the real point of the parable is not necessarily addressing the son that went away. It's actually addressing this older brother who was very upset that the father would forgive the wayward son, the sinner, the one that went and squandered all of the goods of the master. Now, I I emphasize those words because the same word used in Luke 15 of the lost son that takes his inheritance and runs away, he goes and squanders all his goods in a foreign land. That's the same word that we find in the beginning of Luke 16, 
where the master gets a report that his steward squandered all of his goods. So it's a very, it's the same word. And at the end of the prodigal son, here's the older brother who's upset that his dad, the father, would forgive this younger son. Now, that's a theme that has been developed all throughout the book of Luke as Jesus interacts with the Pharisees. They did not like the fact that Jesus was willing to forgive sinners. So I just want to really quickly, just a a brief run through of some interactions with the Pharisees and what they thought of him previously. So Luke chapter five, he says that your sins are forgiven to someone as he's healing him. I think it's the same account as Mark two. It's the man on the bed who can't walk and his friends bring him in. And he says, what's easier for me to heal him or to say your sins are forgiven. And he says, take up your bed and walk. Uh, But when, when he forgives the sins or says that he can forgive sins, the Pharisees are like, what blasphemy is this guy speaking that he says he can forgive sin. Same chapter. He's invited. uh, I I can't remember if he's invited to someone's house. I'd have to pull it up, but they're upset that he eats with tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees specifically. Why would Jesus eat with a sinner? They're upset that he can forgive sin. They're upset that he interacts with unrighteous people. I I think it's uh it's either in chapter six or seven, there's the woman who breaks the vial at his feet. And Simon, one of the Pharisees, is thinking, if he knew what kind of woman she was, he would not let her touch him. And again, this is the shock that he would interact with sinners like this. Uh, Luke chapter six, he heals someone on the Sabbath and it says they are filled with rage that he would do this. And they're planning to to get him back in in chapter six. Again, in chapter seven, he eats with sinners and they're upset. He forgives sins again. They don't like it. Luke 11, they're trying to catch him. Like They were trying to get him to to make a mistake in his words. And they, they can't because he's God. And then you come to Luke 15, where he's, he's speaking about these, uh, these issues or instances of repentance and forgiveness. And at the end of these three parables, you find out that really the, the direction of these parables is to that older brother. Those self-righteous Pharisees of the nation of Israel who don't believe Jesus can forgive sin, that's blasphemy that he shouldn't interact with these sinners. Who does, who does he think he is? He's eating with sinners. He's letting sinners touch him. He's, he's healing people in ways he shouldn't do it. Like they're, they're upset with the ministry of Jesus that he would interact with sinners in these ways. And what he's trying to get them to understand is that actually you're the sinner. It's like, you, you need this too. Like you're the worst ones. So then you come to Luke 16 and uh, we're not going to get in really to the heart of the parable right now. We're just setting the stage, but let's just read down through it really quick. And then I'll highlight a couple of verses that make me think that the context supports that, the application of this parable is, is really directed to the Pharisees. At least when Luke compiled it, I think he's got that as at least one of his main applications. So Luke 16, verse one, he said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. You can no longer be manager." So the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from the management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down and quickly write 50. He said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill, write 80. And the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, 
so that when it fails, or when you fail, there's a variant there, when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have been faithful in the unrighteous, uh, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So ends the discourse of the parable, Jesus' application, and then verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. There's a lot of difficult verses here, but I'm just going to read and finish this section. The law and the prophets were until John, since the good news, since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Like what in the world is that talking about? But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot or of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Like what in the world? And that ends the section. And then verse 19, we get another story. Spoiler. Interesting. About a rich man. Okay. Uh, so just a couple quick thoughts. Just we're establishing context. Verse 14, I think, is key. 13 and 14. A rich man who went to Sheol. Sheol. He doesn't get to heaven. <laughs> he doesn't get to the eternal eternal dwelling, uh, as the passage puts it. But I think 13 and 14 are very important to understanding the passage, and we're going to come back to this in a few weeks. But here's the idea that I want you to think through right now. is Luke is writing this to a man, Theophilus, and there's, there's this dual application being put here. There, it's verse 1, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he does tell disciples what they're supposed to do. But as the story unfolds, you get the full pictures as Jesus is teaching that to the disciples. It's specifically mentioned that the Pharisees are listening. Who are the Pharisees? And it tells you, oh, the Pharisees who love money. It's an important descriptor. Yeah. And verse 13 said, don't love money. If you love one, you'll hate the other. And uh, so you can't serve money and God. And so he's teaching his disciples, hey, you shouldn't love money. You should love me, in a sense. And then these people who all throughout the book don't like Jesus' teaching, think that they're self-righteous. Jesus eats with sinners. He's interacting with sinners in ways they shouldn't. Jesus is trying to tell them, oh, by the way, you think you're righteous. And guess what? The way you use your money shows that you're not because you are a lover of money. And he tells them, like, this is you. Um, but so, uh, just thinking that through, like just trying to establish context of the passage here, speaking to the Pharisees, the way that they love money, the way that they used money demonstrated that they are not righteous. Okay. And the very end of that passage is super interesting to me too, because verse 18, he just throws in, oh, by the way, did verse 18 seem out of place to and you? the divorce well, thing? Yeah. Everyone who divorces his wife. So we just had 17 verses about a parable about a rich man, uh, a shrewd steward. And at the very end of this, it's just like, oh, by the way, if you divorce your wife. And again, I think he's really laying it on thick. Like, you think you're getting into the kingdom, verse 16. You think you're righteous. You think you've got in. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away for one dot of the law to go away. Hmm. One little yod, one little tittle. And it's like, you think you're righteous, but look at the law. And by the law's standards, you're a lover of money. Oh, and by the way, you've divorced your wife and married someone else who was divorced. Wow. So you, you Pharisee who think this is ridiculous, you're clearly not righteous. Hmm. And so you know, all of that, pull it down here the big idea of the passage, you actually demonstrate whether or not you're a disciple or you can state it negatively or positively. You are a disciple 
by the way that you love money or you demonstrate that you are a disciple by the way that you don't love money and you love God. Or if you're not a disciple, you demonstrate that you're not a disciple by the way that you love money or you, you live an unrighteous life. That, that's kind of the, the focus. Uh, we're going to come back in the next episode. We're going to talk about really verses 8 through 12, 13, where he really focuses on the disciples. I mean, what does it mean to make a friend using unrighteous wealth so that you may be received into eternal dwellings? It's a really difficult passage. Um, like it, the way that I use money on earth, does that get me a better place in heaven? I don't know. We have to come back and we'll talk about that in the next episode. The, pr- the point of this episode is that the people listening to this thought they were righteous. He's, he's directing this end application of the Pharisees that the way that they were living their life demonstrated that they actually weren't disciples. They loved money. And he tags verse 18 in there too, that they had some issues with their marriages. <laughs> and uh, so I think a direct application for us is, do we think that we're righteous or actually not? Uh, and one of the ways, I think the heart of this passage is one of the ways I demonstrate me, myself, being a disciple, demonstrate the righteousness of Christ at work in me is in regard to how I love money, how I use money. But so just kind of just priming the pump for the next episode as we try to think through the parable. Uh, how do you use money? Like, is money something that you live for, you love? It kind of consumes your thoughts, consumes your life. Uh, you know, if you think that you are, you know, doing pretty good, just maybe think about how you spend your money and maybe that will reveal some things to you about what's at work in your heart. Tim, you, you raised your finger there. Just, um, <clears throat> I'm just encourage the listener, you know, from this text, use the money that God has blessed you with for his glory. When you see a need and God has given you wealth, use that wealth and take care of that need without asking. This is something somebody taught me uh, several years ago. You don't ask somebody, oh, do you need help? If God places it upon your heart that you should give, then you just give. Don't ask if there is a need. So if you have wealth, you just give it. Give it to them and help them out. Maybe you're going to get into this, so I'll ask this question to you, and then you can say, you'll have to wait. But when it says don't love money, is it, I doubt it's the coinage that it's talking about. Like the papers, the gold. My guess is it's the life it affords you. Is yeah, that, is that think, proper to think that way? Yeah, I don't Because I'm thinking like a poor person could love money and a rich person could love money. Does that sound right or fair? Yeah, I, I don't, I, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're right that I don't think the focus is on like they love the object of the money. I think they love what it means mm. for them. Okay. But yeah, we're going to get helpful. more into it. And even, even Tim, you kind of jumped the gun. Like I didn't want to apply. You didn't? Oh man, it was so there. I just couldn't hold it in. Yeah, that's fine. We're going to, we're going to talk more about <laughs> it's like a fire the, burning in Jeremiah's bones or something. We're going we're gonna to talk more about the application of the parable to a disciple in the next episode. This one, I, I just think it's important to recognize that really how Luke puts the story together is actually not directed at, here's what the disciples need to do, and Jesus applies it correctly, but then the story ends with the Pharisees. And so I think the point of the teaching that's recorded is a part of Jesus's route to Jerusalem. This is the, you know, I don't know how many interactions in the book of Luke he's already had with the Pharisees, but this is just one of many instances where he's teaching about what real righteousness looks like. Uh, A true disciple is not a lover of money. They can't serve two masters. They love God. They are, you know, coming back to to the marshmallow thing at the beginning, they're not worried about what's happening right now. They're worried about what's happening later instead of someone who's really focused on this life. And I think the way that Luke includes it is not as like a moral teaching for disciples. It's not like, oh, remember when Jesus said this, don't love money. Here's how you should invest. Here's how you should spend your money. Great. Good. Let's pray. The end of the story, just like the end of the prodigal son is, hey, older brother, 
self-righteous person. You really mm. think you're righteous, but mm, no, you're not. And Jesus, from Luke 15 to the end of Luke 16, he gives three cases of where the Pharisees thought they were righteous and they weren't. They should have loved forgiveness. They should have rejoiced that Jesus was forgiving sinners. They hated it. They hated that God was interacting with people that were, quotes, more sinful than them. They should have not been lovers of money. But they heard that and they loved money. And they're like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And Jesus is like, yeah, it's because you're not going to heaven. You're not a real disciple. And then the last one where he just tagged in in verse 18 is just, oh yeah, by the way, you think you're righteous, but you've divorced your wife. You married someone who was divorced. You guys, you know, you guys are really wicked. And uh, by the standard of the law, no flesh is justified. And that included the Pharisees. So just building context, I think that this passage is directed to self-righteous people who, yeah, I'm a lover of God, which is interesting that that is who it's written to, Theophilus. I love God. I love God. And Jesus is like, no, you love money. So we'll, we'll come back to this in a few weeks and we'll try to apply it a little bit more, uh, bring it into modern context. What would it look like to embody the virtues of the parable? But that's just the thought to think about now. Uh, if I say I love God and I hear Jesus in verse 13 that I can't serve two masters, are there any things, maybe like money, that I love more than him? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.